We all have a creative part of our brain, whether we use it or not, for generating new ideas, problem solving, and just viewing ourselves in this world. I am Ricky McGeckron, an artist living in Chicago, and I am eager to know and share with you all how people of a creative leaning have brought this way of thinking to the forefront and how it has shifted outcomes. When I first started this podcast, I was excited to reveal all of the differences between the many creative people I was going to speak to. Artists, actors, painters, photographers, each with different backgrounds, skills, and interests. All of their unique differences would be revealed. Much to my surprise, I quickly learned that everyone is way more similar than I ever expected. This was shocking and I realized it very early on after not too many episodes. We all seem to have many common parts. Hopes for the future, fears about the world and how we are perceived in it, joyfulness of reaching dreams, and sometimes sadness seeing others achieving our failed dreams. That's a tough one. I think this commonality actually makes learning from others easier. William Conger is an accomplished Chicago painter. There are so many ways a conversation can go, different avenues you can choose to explore. This conversation with William was focused on the common elements we all share, seeing the world as a child, the expectations set on us by parents, expectations we set for ourselves, and making our way in the world. The unique thing about William is that for him, Much of this is revealed for all of the world to see in his art. I am happy to share my conversation with painter William Conger. William, thank you very much for taking time to meet with me. We're here in your studio, and the first thing I want to say is your studio is incredible. Oh, thank you, Rick. When I think of an artist studio, this is exactly... Uh, this is exactly what I would think of. Beautiful light, beautiful space, um, and, you know, surrounded by all of your artwork. So, yeah, I'm very comfortable here. I've been here 20 years. Yeah. I had another space uh, elsewhere in, in the city for quite a few years, too. But uh, I ended up here, and I like it. Now, do you come to the studio every day? Well, I try. I'm, you know, I'm older now, but I, I do get here almost every day. Uh, perhaps not as long as I used to work. I used to work 10 or 12 hours and think nothing of it. Now, five or six. Uh, some days I can't get here. I have other obligations, but uh, I do try to get here on a regular basis. When you were working 10 or 12-hour day, were you usually working, I'm sure it was different every day, but would you work on a, one painting for that entire time, or would you be mixing it up and doing different things throughout the day, that 10-hour period? I usually had a few projects going, uh, but normally I would devote myself to one work at a time, and of course it became necessary to sometimes work on something else because paint. I use oil paint and it was wet and so forth. So I'd have another project going, maybe a smaller painting, um, or doing something on paper. Uh, But generally, I would stick to one painting as the central focus, and then have other things to 
experiment with or to develop alongside? That's a long time to be focused on one thing. You know, I think most jobs that people have, you know, even though they're doing, you, you know, usually you're not focused on one thing like that for that period of time. That's are, true. Are, is that something that, are you like a focused person in your life outside of the studio? Or are, is it just when it comes to painting, you're able to do that? I think I'm pretty organized. I think I, I, my outside life is organized in order to preserve the time and integrity of my studio life. So I like to get things done so that I can be free both uh, in terms of time and mentally when I, when I come to my studio. But when I come here in the morning, I generally start right to work. I'll get something going right away. I don't... Uh, sit around and wait for inspiration or anything like that. I just get to work. I like what you said about your outside life. Like it's sort of supporting you being an artist. Yeah, everything I, is around that. Yeah. yeah, I feel the same way. I'm very much into fitness. And yeah. one of the reasons why I am is because it helps me be a better painter. Yeah. And I know that sounds crazy to some no, people. No, I understand but, that. But yeah. I, you know, I can't paint if I'm not feeling well, if I'm like hungover or something, like it's not going to work. Um, I have to be, the the more fit I am and the better I'm eating sure. and the better my mood is, the better the, um, the more effective I'm gonna be in, this, in the studio. So you grew up in Chicago and obviously being, uh, growing up in Chicago and being in Chicago, the lake is a big part of the city and I did not fully appreciate that obviously I didn't grow up here I grew up in New England I didn't realize how big a part of the culture and the it's in people's mind it all is. the time it is. and it affects your artwork ultimately I, I recall the uh, a tremendous uh, differences in sounds and character uh, between the city and the lake or the park when I was a youngster because in those days during the World War II there were a lot of factories uh, smaller factories in the area just west of uh, where we lived and uh, you could hear them start up in the morning you could hear the the horns and the whistles and then there were still the the old streetcars that rattled uh, right, along the road. What about smells? Were there smells And the too? smells and the the people who would roam up and down the, the alleys uh, right. selling fruits or wanting to sharpen knives or get rags or whatever the case might be and yeah. delivering. And as soon as you went to the lake, it was silent. Yeah. So the silence of the lake and the foghorns, there were... A lot of uh, there was a lot of shipping on Lake Michigan in those years because they were bringing ore down to uh, you know Calumet and in Indiana to the steel mills, and so just constant foghorns that one would hear in the morning. Yeah, when I'd take the family dog out for a walk, I could one side hear the foghorns, a very mournful kind of sound. And then on the other side, the clanking and the whistles and the the uh, noise of the city waking up. Yeah, so it's, it two, quite a, quite it's a, two worlds that two are worlds basically and, adjoining. Uh, it's a very interesting dynamic. Yeah, in fact, I really uh, kind of put that all together in a painting I did in the early 80s, which I called Broadway. Broadway was the first commercial street 
west of where I lived as a kid. And uh, that was really the dividing line between the quietness of the more residential area of Lincoln Park and the the more urban factory-centered yep. area. And so uh, I did a large painting, which uh, happily was acquired by the Art Institute uh, a little bit later, uh, which I thought kind of... Uh, symbolize that merging of two worlds, uh, an urban world of energy and action and a more uh, melancholy, if you will, uh, world of the lake. My aesthetic sensibility is shaped by the this contrast between energetic, active, maybe even violent versus a very um, quiet and reticent, moody, uh, kind of space. Cool. I want to talk about your childhood as it relates to seeing yourself as an artist. Did you, can you tell me about that? Did you see yourself as an artist as a kid? How did that happen? It, it happened early. My mother was a, a kind of an amateur artist uh, and she would take me to the Art Institute on Saturdays. I remember that explicitly. Uh, and we would take the, the brand new subway and go down to the Art Institute. And I just loved it. It was, it was so spectacular to me. I, and I basically memorized everything I could see there. And what age was this? I was Starting at? Four or five. Wow. You know, and uh, five. And uh, I just loved it. And I memorized these paintings and where they were. And uh, looking back at that five-year-old, like, what do you think? Because most five-year-olds, five-year-olds, five-year-old boys don't have that kind of reaction to going to a museum. Yeah. Um, what What do you think about that? Like that five-year-old kid. Well, I don't know. I mean, for me, it was just uh, the best experience and the most adventuresome experience I could have. And later on, when our own children were around that age, and I was, of course, eager to take them to the museums, to the Art Institute, they were, well, more like normal kids. Yeah. Like, you know, when can we go get something to eat, or when do we go home? And But, of course, they did eventually become very interested. But uh, I think it is, I don't know if I was that unique or just a lonely kid who loved uh, going to the museum with my mother, but I I, uh, I did love it, and we would get postcards of uh, paintings, and then I would try to copy them. And so early on, then when I entered the first grade, I was, uh, for some reason, asked to do some illustrations or something, cut out things that would go on the school bulletin board, and of course I just loved that, and I... I guess I did a good job because everybody liked it, and <clears throat> so when I was asked what I wanted to be when I grew up, I instantly said artist. And so from the first grade on, I was claiming to be an artist, and uh, it finally got to the point, well, I better live up to it now. My father worked for Encyclopedia Britannica, and of course in those days, those uh, encyclopedias had lots of illustrations. and. I do recall on Saturdays, sometimes he would take me down to the office, and there I met an artist. His name was Dale Nichols, and I thought he was the greatest artist on earth. 
because I had seen some of his illustrations. I would seen a few of his actual paintings because uh, Britannica had a fairly good collection of American art that was uh, hung in the offices at the, at the company. And so I could see his paintings, and when I met him, it was like, you know, going to heaven. And he was a very wonderful gentleman, and, a, and I still admire his work tremendously. A lot of artists, a lot of very important artists, you know, really worked their day job as uh, illustrators, like Edward Hopper and so forth. Uh, Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol, Reginald Marsh. I mean, a lot of them. And yeah. that was not a... Uh, there wasn't a division between the commercial and the fine art that came to exist after universities developed their own fine art departments. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about formal training. Mm -hmm. When did you start getting formal training or any, I guess you probably had art class in school, but when did someone well, actually teach you how to paint? I went draw? to a uh, parochial or Catholic school, and of course, art was not part of the curricula. And uh, beginning in the fourth or fifth grade, I think they had a teacher come in once a week to spend an afternoon with the kids, you know, doing some project. And so I was very interested in that. And I do recall that my great moment is when uh, this person came in, a woman, and she asked us to draw a picture of uh, something in our neighborhood, I think. And I did a, a drawing of a postman uh, delivering mail. And I was in the fifth grade, so I was nine, ten years old. It was remarkable by the standards of other kids who were... Well, he put these works up on the bulletin board, and uh, most of the kids would draw stick figures or something like that. And mine was a fairly, you know, fairly convincing uh, drawing of this uh, mailman, you know, hunched over by the weight of his mailbag, walking along the sidewalk. And she thought it was remarkable, and she said that, well, you should go to the school of the Art Institute for junior classes. And so I did. My parents said, okay. And so on uh, Saturdays thereafter, I began taking classes uh, at the, Arts, the School of the Art Institute. And were you taking cla the classes with kids? Yes, or were they, they were all youngsters of a similar age group. What type of stuff would they teach at the Art Institute, kids that age? Like, what was well, the nature? Well, it wasn't very uh, sophisticated. They had... Um, long table set up I recall and then every conceivable color mixed up pre-mixed it would all be a, a kind of a watercolor tempera colors really in those days uh, acrylics were still uh, still a little bit uh, were not known and uh, so it was a kind of a tempera color which all kids had used at one point or another but it was in big quantities with big brushes and uh, big sticks of crayon and charcoal and all of a sudden you were just you know overwhelmed with the uh, the well the professionalism of it all it looked so big yeah. deal you yeah know? did you like that or oh was I that, loved it the loved it? Uh, and we would they would uh, they would set up little still lifes uh, nothing really complicated but and I tended to follow the still life try to do something but. Mainly, I was just interested in all that fluid paint. You know, it was just fantastic. Did you feel that 
being with other kids that were artistically inclined that you found your group of people or like did you feel like you related to them i was very competitive okay uh i was interested in you know how good are they mm-hmm. and am i any good or am i better or am i worse or is that kid better than me i mean i was all you know i was competitive uh so it wasn't so much uh, that these were my teammates uh these were my um these are the people I could be measured against or measure myself against. My mother was very supportive of my interests. My father was really not. He was a businessman and he wanted to look forward to seeing his son follow him in his career path and uh, he looked forward to to me being like that. He, his own father had died when he was very young and so he essentially grew up having to carve out a place for himself in a very competitive way as a student, as a, a young person trying to make it in the middle of the depression. Uh, so I think he instilled in me this sense of, you know, do a good job. But maybe I was competing in a way to prove to him that I could do this and that I'm good at this. Yeah. And, Did your dad ever explicitly state that he didn't want you to go into art and that he wanted you to go into business? Yes, he yes, did. on okay. many, many occasions. Mm. Yeah, he uh, was very... In fact, uh, later when I went to the School of the Art Institute full-time, and at which I had uh, applied to without anyone in the family knowing it, <laughs> And then when I was accepted, I just presented the letter of acceptance to them, and they really, at that time, had no idea what I was going to do after I finally finished high school. Uh, He thought I would go to a junior college or something and try to get me warmed up for a serious college because I had been such a poor student. Mm. Uh, But I got into the school on the basis of a portfolio and such that I presented, And so then uh, I did go there for a year, but during that whole year, I was uh, badgered in a way and made very uncomfortable about that. I liked it there. I had Badgered by whom? Well, by my father mainly, uh, you know, in his own way. He just didn't understand why I wanted to do this. He wanted me to go to a real university. Did did he, um, did your dad ever understand at any point uh no i'm afraid not he he died young uh, he, he died in in his early 50s uh and so he really at that point i was still pretty much at sea okay know, uh in terms of my own development and career so unfortunately he didn't know that i actually did put it together uh yeah. And my mother had already died, so I was a, you know, in, ter- in those terms, in those days, I was an orphan at early 20s. Mm, okay. Which seems old enough now to make it on your own, but it was tough. Yeah, well, it was so, tough. Uh, yeah, it's... Not to have anyone to, I really didn't have any relatives that could help me or do anything for me. Uh, so I was really on my own, and that really turned up the dials in terms of, you better go out there and figure out how to make a living at this. I mean, I did eventually go the second year to the University of New Mexico, which had been suggested by a friend who was also an executive at Britannica. His name was Walter Eust, and he was the editor-in-chief. And Walter Eust was different from all of his colleagues in the company 
because he was an artist and uh, a pretty good amateur artist. And he lived in Evanston and I would go to his home on weekends and we would paint together. At that time, my father had was encouraging my association with Walter Eust because he was a, a kind of a prominent intellectual and uh, uh, he thought he could convince me that I could continue my artist's interests like Walter Eust did as a, an accomplished amateur. As a hobby. And, and then still be uh, successful in business. Uh, which he was and uh, so that was the idea of that but Walter Hughes was such a wonderful man he he really uh, thought I was doing really well and and he encouraged me to go away to school uh, to get away from home and this uh, pressure and instead go to a school where he knew somebody uh, that he admired and uh, that was the University of New Mexico and what did you study there well, I, I went in as a, an art major, uh, but I also studied philosophy. I became very much interested in, uh, in philosophy, and so I, I really bridged two, two fields while I was a, an undergraduate, uh, art and philosophy. Uh, and I did meet and uh, was mentored to some degree by uh, Raymond Johnson, who was the person that uh, Walter used had known so well and uh, Raymond Johnson was a very prominent <clears throat> American artist who had gone to the Southwest to settle uh, some years earlier so he was very encouraging so all of a sudden I was surrounded by very encouraging people uh, both artists and my professors in philosophy and so uh, suddenly I had you might say uh, a kind of surrogate parents who uh, were more uh, interested in in what I had to offer instead of what they had to offer. At New Mexico, I also became friendly with Elaine de Kooning, who had been who went there to as a visiting professor, and she was uh, remarkably helpful to me, and she encouraged me a lot, and she wanted me to go to New York, and so on, and. Uh, she put me in a in a show there in New York, and that was reviewed in Art News. And so, I was still an undergraduate, but here I was uh, seeing my my work reviewed. Uh, you know, not in a big way, but there in uh, in a major publication. So I felt, yeah, I, I can do this. When did what you were creating go from direct observation, you know, creating something from what you're observing with your eyes, to creating something that's inspired by what's going on in your mind from your imagination? At the Art Institute, in those days, we spent most of the day drawing from the model. Half a day, every day, would be devoted to drawing from the live model, and then the other half of the day would be devoted to more or less experimental work with uh, materials, a collage, drawing of you know imaginative work or uh, design, color mixing, and things of that sort. So it was skill development, really, uh, more than anything else at that in the beginning, in the foundation level at the school. But when I went to the University of New Mexico, it was not nearly as uh, uh, rigorous and uh, it bothered me but at the same time it was much more open creatively and so you could 
you were kind of encouraged to, well, what else can you do, you know? Uh, what can you do to, to amaze me? And then came Elaine de Kooning with the uh, abstract expressionist concept, you know, right with her. And I immediately fell into that, and I was very much interested in, uh, you know, action painting and abstract expressionist uh, procedures, and that was very strongly encouraged. Uh, is it was that a surprise to you? Like, because it sounds like everything you were doing up to this point was about replicating either what you're seeing on another artwork or replicating what is being yeah. put in front of you to now getting into this, you know, abstract area. That almost seems like a different. A different well, part of you. You know, it was, but you know, when you're young, you're you're attracted to anything new and exciting, and especially if it's ratified by other people who are have become famous in this way and who are very very smart. Uh, in addition, uh, you 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 can't resist it. Uh, but it is true at the School of the Art Institute, a lot of my teachers were very much opposed to abstract expressionism. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember seeing my very first Jackson Pollock at the uh, school and my teacher poo-pooing it and saying it's just nonsense and we shouldn't waste our time looking at it. But I was very much attracted to it. And uh, so I was already a little bit torn. But at the, uh, at the school, the emphasis was really on, uh, as I said, skill development. If yep. you couldn't draw by the end of a first year of life drawing, if you were still clumsy, you were basically invited to go home. So you're not the type of artist who, it appears, spends all of their time just in the studio creating. You've been involved with the art community. You had a newsletter or a magazine at one point. Um, so that's a very... That well, that's true. I, uh, I think my uh, time at the University of New Mexico, then later at the University of Wisconsin, and then later at the University of Chicago, you know, the, my intellectual life, as you might call it, is very important to me. And I became very involved in art history, the study of philosophy and aesthetics, uh, literature to some degree uh, along with my art and but so I was always uh, kind of multifaceted in that respect but it sounds like you are connected with other people it's not just you are reading a lot and you're not just painting a lot I get the feeling from looking at your background that you are building relationships with artists uh, people in the world yeah we uh, yeah I was always very much interested in the in the uh, discussion of art the the discursive nature of it uh, that it that art is really fundamentally about ideas and how we develop our ideas and how we translate our experiences and feelings uh, into ideas of one sort or another that have some kind of physical manifestation, whether it's a written word, whether it's music, whether it's architecture, painting, sculpture, all of these are, are expressions of something that is essentially an idea about experience. And it may not be well formed, it may not be resolved, in fact, seeking the resolution is part of the process. Uh, 
so yeah I, in that respect I've never been the kind of artist who is just so centered on my studio practice that nothing else matters for me uh, a painting is is uh, it's a kind of almost an architectural problem I like how things fit together in a way that they support each other but I do think of my work as abstract but at the same time it's it alludes to the figure, uh, the figure in motion. It alludes to structure, uh, to the geometry of, uh, of the city. It's, it's a combination. Yep. In the same way that the lake is a, is a contrast and yet a complement to the city. When you're creating a painting, I assume you go to a place that is very unique to painting. Yeah, it's a whole world of its own. It has its own problems. It's waiting for me every day. I come here, and they're all, you know, all these things are saying, well, Bill, what are you going to do today? Uh, uh, you know, we're all here, and uh, we all have our issues <laughs> uh, to bring up with you, so to speak. Uh, so in a way, I'm, like, I'm still like the manager, right? I come in, and I organize and manage and uh, perfect. Yeah. It's funny how a painting, I often start a painting in a very loose fashion, uh, just intuitively, as I did when I was practicing abstract expressionism. In a way, the, the history of one of my paintings is, is almost a recap of my whole history uh, in development. I start with a very splashy and loose arrangement, and then I gradually bring to it a kind of rationality you might say and then still it's intuitive but one that's informed by how things go together well I'm still very fascinated by the opportunities that are given to me in each painting yeah and as I get older well I'm a little more willing to uh, try things that may or may not you know may not work out yeah. uh, like I, for years, have done paintings with very clear edges, even though it's contrasted by a sense of atmosphere and sfumato and the coloring. When you get to the edge, boy, you knew exactly where it was. Yeah. Uh, again, like engineering or chemistry or something. But now I've been doing very blurry edges and uh, fascinated by that kind of... Uh, thing where the edge can be very blurry but somehow still resolve itself into an integrated unity that is certain. So can we talk about intention yeah. versus results? Yes, in, in I, that's that a very yeah, wonderful subject. I, I love that subject. Uh, and of course I've wrestled with it my whole life and uh, I've always been unconvinced by the, by the uh, fairly simplistic uh, uh, slogans that come out of that. Uh, like there's a whole rage over the past few decades for an artist statement, you know, as if these are my intentions and this is how I, I express them and this is how I fulfill them or something. As if I'm packaging something and then putting a, a stamp on it and delivering it to a customer. That's not it at all. I think one has to have intentions. That is, you have to have some uh, notion that you're going to do X. Pick up a brush instead of a knife. Uh, you're going to use color Z, you know, instead of color A. You're, you're going to make it thick or thin. You, you know, these are very basic 
uh, intentions uh, that one acts on. Uh, but, of course, none of that is a key to success in any way, shape, or form uh, because then you put it to work to do something, and that is to expose in some way some feeling or thought or some just instant motivation, instant urge, I should say. Uh, so I think uh, in the way uh, a philosopher might say, well, intentions are necessary but never sufficient. You know, you, you have to have a plan to get you started, even it may be very simple or it may be elaborate, but in the end, the goal of the work is to express something that goes way beyond the mere uh, presentation of intentions being followed through. Let's talk about people talking about art. So I have a background before I was a painter where I was, first I was in the petrochemical industry yeah. and I sold plastic. Yeah. So this is something that is used and it's sold to someone, they make something out of yes. it and it adds value yes. and it keeps going. And then yes. I was in consulting. So I would help companies build like a website where they would be selling things. Yeah. With art, you have this artifact and then it's just done. And yeah. it's sold yeah. and it kind of ends. ends. But it doesn't end because you can talk about it. So can you tell me about that? Well, I, I, I like very much your distinction between the, uh, uh, you know, function and use, that the works of art can have many functions, uh, very ordinary functions, you know, to fill a spot on an empty wall or to provide a decoration or to be a commodity that's traded for something uh, that has some value that perhaps is greater than the value that's involved in making it the same way as the products you spoke about. Uh, but beyond that, it's, it's something that's discursive. It always asks a question, is, you know, what, what kind of importance uh, is this as, an ex as a human expression, which ultimately says, well, you know, what's important about being a human being? Uh, and these are much tougher questions. They can't be put to functional use very easily although they do underlie everything we do as a society. I mean, when you were doing your job, you were basically helping people understand that this product could make their lives better in one way or another, even if it's you know, making more money for somebody or making a, a manufacturing process simpler. Uh, well, I did that too when I wrote ads. Uh, my job was to try to explain the benefits of a product and how it's gonna make someone's life better if they use it. But of course, that's only if we understand that life can be better and that we should be thinking about who we are as people and what we, what we can do and think about. So I think in the end, art always has the question, like, well, what is important about this? And that has, that has to engage a discussion, uh, an examination of some sort that may involve both strict logic, it uh, might be social, a lot of art today is very social. Uh, it might be just purely aesthetic from the standpoint of how relationships of things work together. Uh, but I think all of these are very important questions that require a kind of thought process, you know, that is, goes beyond the experience, the direct experience of the work. Thank you very much for letting me come here to your studio and uh, to spending time with me. This has been great getting to know you and talking to you. 
Rick, thank you very much. And it was fascinating. I love your questions. And I think uh, this is exactly the kind of conversation I most enjoy, just sitting down with someone and just, you know, talking about art, talking about the issues we face as artists. And, uh, you know, it's, it's still a large, it's a mystery, you know, why we do it. <laughs> but it's something that is very compelling and, uh, and rewarding. Great. Thank you. You're very welcome. My name is Ricky McGuckrin, and you have been listening to Eager to Know, the podcast. If you haven't already, please go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Eager to Know podcast. 